0: Welcome to Grassroots Nation, a podcast from Rohini Nilekini Philanthropies, a show in which we dive deep into the life, work and guiding philosophies of some of our country's greatest leaders of social change. In today's episode, we are in conversation with Dr. Armida Fernandez. Dr. Armida's career has been defined by her compassion and empathy. Born in Dharwad in Karnataka, she studied medicine and specialized in paediatrics. Dr. Armida decided not to follow a professional path working in a private hospital, choosing instead to work at a government hospital, the Lokmanya Tilak Municipal General Hospital and Medical College Hospital, or Cyan Hospital as it is more commonly referred to. Dr. Fernandez is one of India's foremost neonatologists, treating babies born in some of the most underprivileged and marginalized homes in Mumbai. She has dedicated her life to service in public health, from pioneering the cause of neonatology in our country by focusing on low-cost solutions that are available to all, she has championed breastfeeding in India and has started the first human milk bank in India. For over 22 years, from 1977 till 1999, Dr. Fernandez was the head of the neonatology department at Sion Hospital treating underweight and premature infants born into low-income households. From working in maternal and infant health care, she then expanded her work to fighting domestic violence against women and children, and even palliative care through the establishment of the Romila Palliative Care Centre in 2017. In 1999, Dr. Fernandez founded SNEHA, or the Society for Nutrition, Education and Health Action which has two primary goals that of improving health-seeking behavior among underserved communities and improving the quality of public health services with over 500 people today sneha works across urban centers with women and children and their families and their mission today is focused on raising health for all dr armida fernandez is in conversation today with sonalini a former civil servant and Development Communications Specialist. Sonalini is the Founder-CEO of The Communications Hub, a leading development communications organization. She is also a member of several advisory boards, including Population Foundation of India, Sneha and CCDT. She is a Director at KESV Foundation, set up by her last year, that implements interventions in palliative care Focusing on communities at the margins. This conversation was recorded in Mumbai at Dr. Fernandez's residence.
1: Dr. Fernandez, this is such a pleasure. I mean, to be here this afternoon, looking out at the sea from these wonderful windows in your home and catching up on the story of your life and all that you've done over the several decades. I haven't known you for so many decades, but it's been such a privilege and pleasure to know you for the time that I have. I think I really have to thank Grassroots Nation for making this happen. So thank you for being here. And I think, you know, I would really love to know a little more about how it all began. Perhaps if we go back to the formative years, I mean, I do know that neither your neither of your parents were doctors. And none of your siblings took to medicine. But here you are, a neonatologist. So could you tell us how that happened? So first of all, Raston thank you for being here. I mean,
2: I know how busy you are, and then you take time from, and you know. And a person like you interviewing me, you've been in communications hub, you've done a wonderful job. And then all the advice, you've been an advisor to Sneha. So and every time you came, you added value to Sneha, so thank you for being here. So, you know, I was very fortunate to be born in a little town called Dharwar, and it's in Karnataka. And fortunate too, because Dharwar was, what I would say, heavenly... My childhood, I'm talking of many years ago, actually 80 years ago, uh, it was a city with only colleges and universities, there were no factories, Gardens and trees and birds and what I mean everything that one would want an environment to grow up with. So I had a a really a lovely childhood, and you're right. You know the, no one was a doctor in my family, but I think what my parents instilled into every one of us, not only instilled by way of uh, telling us what to do, but by actually acting what uh, they wanted us to do in life. One is that uh, they were uh, so compassionate and caring, you know, they they always felt for people, and they reached out to people. And I think that was instilled. I think it was also the, the background of our religion, Christianity, you have to be there for people, you have to be there for poor, and they, they did that themselves. And we had a home, you know, everybody was accepted. There was equality, you know, there was no caste, creed, anyone. So that sort of an environment that I grew in was a, a wonderful environment, and having put this into our, my mind, that we have to be there for people, I think, uh, I probably I felt, now I look back, I felt that the way of reaching out to the people who need you, and was would be to do medicine. I know I, I loved animals and birds, and any bird, animal that was hurt or some wound, I should always try and treat it. So I next went into, medicine but i think in a way sunalini i was i must have disappointed my parents my father was professor of literature and i was an avid reader and he thought i might take up english literature but i didn't and my mother was dead against me doing medicine because she thought it would be too tiring and why when you can have a good life why do you want to work so hard but then i had made up my mind and that's how
1: i did medicine so that's really wonderful to hear, Dr. Fernandez. I mean, we are really glad that you chose to become a doctor. And I'm sure your mum would have just loved to see what you're doing today. Within the field of medicine, was there something that motivated you in particular to become a pediatrician? I mean, there were many choices, surely. There was cardiology, there was, you know, everybody was looking at gynae, OBGYN. So why pediatrics? Was there anything that made you choose that? So when I finished medicine, I had decided, I mean,
2: worked in Hubli Medical College, close to Dharwar, that I would like to work with a ru- in the rural areas. And I started off working with the missionaries of charity, who were housed in Dharwar, and who used to go into the rural areas and work. And one day, a child was brought to me, an infant, maybe six or eight months, and that child was passing blood in stools. Came from a neighboring village. Uh, when that uh, child went home after a few days, I, when I asked one of the neighbors who had come from that village, I said, "What has happened to the child?" They told me that the child died. You know, I was filled with guilt. I said, uh, "You know, I finished my MBBS, but do I know enough to look after children?" I said, "No, I can't continue working here. I need to know more about pediatrics because it is a, a tough part." To look after in medicine, and I said I must do pediatrics, and that's why I, uh, you know, I left Darwar actually, and then I, I came to Bombay, and I was fortunate enough to get a seat in a, a KEM hospital, you know, in Bombay, and that's how I moved and started pediatrics.
1: Given that you were a pediatrician, there must have been options of. Choosing to work in the private sector, for example. I mean, I'm sure there would have been a huge career path for you over there. But it looks like you made a conscious choice to work within the public healthcare system. Was there anything in particular that made you do that? You know what? I came to Bombay to do pediatrics. But in Bombay,
2: that's where I met my wonderful husband, Rui. And uh, when we decided to get married, and we were still deciding to get married, I told him, "See, I want to work in the rural sector." And he was, he said, "Rural sector?" He said, "Whatever for?" I said, "You know, the uh, the really poor people stay there, and that's where I'd like to work." So the what the answer Rui gave me really made me think. He said, "Why do you have to go out to look at poor?" He said, "Look at Mumbai." He said, "Look at the look at the." Patients that come to KEM hospital, they're all poor, they're all miserable. Why have to go, you go out to? So why don't you work here and work for the public sector? And I think at that time, I decided that and I want to give Rui credit, you know. Uh, you know, uh, times were tough. We were not financially well off. We didn't have a home. We didn't have, actually we were uh, taken loans. And he could have at any time told me, I think you better move from this uh, public sector that hardly pays into the private sector, we need the money, but not once. He always encouraged me, you know, that's where I belonged, actually.
1: You know, I I loved it, I would do it again. That's really something heartwarming that you just said, because I think uh, both Dr. Rui and you, I mean, this complete dedication to working amongst the marginalized, amongst people who cannot really afford private health care, And bringing a level of attention and, you know, humanism to every patient who's sitting in front of you. There was another choice that you made subsequently, and that was to specialize in neonatology, which was a relatively new term. I mean, it didn't even exist as a subspecialty, if I'm right, around the time that you opted to look at that. Tell us a little bit about how that came to happen. When,
2: when I started working in paediatrics, I moved from KEM to Cyan Hospital and I was working in, in paediatrics. At that time, you know, obstetricians were still looking after newborn babies. Only when the babies got really sick, then they referred to the paediatrics. And we had a paediatric nursery, we had a premature unit, but it wasn't one paediatrician. All the people who were in there went and saw b- babies whenever they could. Being a young pediatrician joining Sion Hospital, you know, I I wanted to go off to a conference. So that at that time I decided, I said, why not analyze the deaths of babies in Sion Hospital? And to my shock, Sunalini, the neonatal deaths of sick babies I'm talking of, and premature babies was, you know, over 70%. I don't know how I had the courage, but that's what... I found, I went to Srinagar and read that paper. I'm, I can tell you I was the lo- stock of that conference. I came back and told the head of the department, Dr. Attable, I said, why did you let me do this? Do you know what people said? So he asked me one question, is that the truth? And I said, of course, I analyzed all the data. And the second sentence was, why don't you do something about it? You know, Sunalni. In that one minute, I turned from a pediatrician to, the, to a neonatologist. And from that moment onwards, and for years and years to come, my whole thought was, how can I save babies from dying? How can I save newborn babies from dying? And that's why I spent all my life after that, really, being a neonatologist. Neonatology, like you said, where even in pediatrics was not a subspecialty. It came much later. But it was a looking only at newborns, finding out why they die, trying to reduce the mortality that really made me the neonatologist I am.
1: If you would be okay with talking about it, I do remember you telling me once that your own newborn was very unwell soon after she came into this world. That Romila required a level of care which, you know, I mean, today it's taken for granted in terms of the NICUs, but in those days, for a little baby to have to undergo blood transfusions, I mean, I'm just wondering whether you could tell us a little bit about that. That was really tough. And I I think I need to share that
2: because that time, I'm talking about almost 50 years ago, when a baby had high levels of bilirubin, in very jaundice, in the neonatal period, that bilirubin could damage the brain. And therefore, we had to change the blood of that baby. Now, unfortunately, I'm Rh negative, and Romola, who was born after many years of marriage, uh, she had this hyperbilirubinemia. And we had to change her blood from the third day onwards. And you won't believe Sonalini, Because the risk, there were 50% chances of risk of her not making it through the exchange. So every time they took her away from me, blood collection and the screams of blood collection, then, you know, you you don't anesthetize a baby. As you do the exchange, you can hear those cries. And then I used to wait for the footsteps to see, is, is my baby coming back to me or not? Not wondering whether. And of course, for... Fortunately for her and for me, uh, uh, she made it through those three exchange transfusions. But this incident changed me totally as a as a doctor, as a, a neonatologist. Because you know, you know, when we looked at, I looked at babies. I used to look at the babies and I used to care for them. What was wrong with the baby? What was the diagnosis? Then I had students and I taught them, and we. We made sure, we tried our best to make the child live. But, you know, we never looked like at the mothers. I had gone through the pain of a mother who almost lost her child. I knew what every mother in that ward, when the baby is really ill, goes through. And I think I became a different human being. And I think all my life, even today, when I look, At a patient, I just don't look at that baby. I look at the... I feel with the mother. I don't look, but I feel with the person who's looking after that baby. I think it made a lot of difference in the way I cared for our patients.
1: I think that's a special, rare quality that you bring to everything you do. I mean, I think we have seen it with with all the work that you've done over the years. This ability to empathize completely and totally with another's pain. It's it's rare. I mean, not many of us have that. I think those of us who've come to know you are very blessed and fortunate to to know that such a thing is even possible. But I'm just thinking back and you made that resolution that no more babies should die and I'll do whatever I can to make sure they survive. And you were working in a setting that wasn't necessarily a high-resource setting. I mean, a public health hospital like Sion, it was a low-resource setting. There wasn't fancy equipment. I mean, probably there were incubators that had just come in. Today, there are terms like thinking out of the box, thinking on your toes. But what could you have possibly done to bring down those infant mortality rates that were really high? Were there certain things that you did? I mean, I know that at a much later stage, much of this was incorporated into the public healthcare system. But if you could tell us a little bit about those times and those little innovations that made a difference.
2: Yeah, when I said I must do something about the deaths, the first thing was why are so many babies dying? So I had to actually look at the causes of death and why babies died. And I found out that most of those babies died of infection. And then I had to say, what is the source of infection? And you won't believe, Sonali. do you know the first cause of infection happened to be the incubators that we're using. Now, these were not the latest incubators. These were I call them prehistoric, they were donated by the UNICEF, they're old, difficult to wash, and there was a little humidifier with water there, which is a source of infection. And how I realized that, because when a baby was born preterm, we put in that incubator, within hours or within a day, the baby became septic. And I said, my God, what's happening? And then we took cultures from that incubator, and we found the worst bugs. The Klebsiella striodumana in those incubators. And there was no way of, one would say, clean them and reuse it. But cleaning it on a regular, we didn't have the staff, and it was difficult to clean. I said, I have to get rid of the incubators. So if I had to get rid of the incubators, then how would I keep the babies warm? Municipal Corporation, no budget, no more equipment, and there was no, we just couldn't buy new equipment. And those, don't forget, incubators were not bought, they were donated. So then I said, I realized that, yeah, Mumbai has the best humidity, 40% ideal for preterms, that was one battle won. And then I said, let me warm up the room. It was a small room, you know, it's half of this size. So I put warmers, and that brought up the temperature. But the smallest of babies were still not being kept warm. So I started using lamps. 20, 40, 80 wattage. And so we use these lamps to keep them warm. The other thing is that sometimes I'm saying there are places in villages where you don't have lamps. What would they do? And I tried putting oil on the skin. Babies, when they lose water through the skin, the temperature drops. If you put oil, the water doesn't evaporate. So the temperature remains. So here was something that people across villages could do to keep the babies warm so one was incubators of one source of infection of and the babies are kept warm the second uh, cause i found out was that it was uh, babies used to get diarrhea and got sepsis and then they died so what was the source of infection we were giving babies formula milk we gave them animal milk and we fed them with bottles and i said this must stop so what we did is i got rid of the bottles i stopped the formula and i stopped animal milk so what do i feed babies with i had to feed all babies with breast milk and to make it easier i said i changed the rules of that unit i said every mother will be a nurse so mothers had ease of access into the unit they came they Fed their babies. They expressed milk and kept it for their babies. So they got the source of milk. This uh, added helped us because we didn't have enough nurses. So I said, every nurse will be a, every mother will be a nurse because we didn't have enough nurses. And what better nurse than a mother? I mean, a mother holds the baby, holds the baby close, feeds the baby. She's giving them the baby positive vibes that you need to live. I love you, which no nurse doctor can give. I think that made a whole lot of difference to the baby. So the mothers came in, but the only problem was that when some mothers didn't have enough milk, or they couldn't come up, then I had to use one mother's milk and give it to another baby. So being a a medical college in a hospital, it was not a very scientific and a correct way of doing things. So then I said, what can one do? And finally, as you know, I started a human milk bank. So we ensured a safe, secure form of milk that was banked. So every baby in that unit in the hospital also got uh, just human milk. So that was the second major thing. But you know, simple things, I can't tell you what simple things you can do. For example, you... You don't have towels in a municipal hospital. Where do you have disposable towels? You don't have towels to start with. And I had a dryer, put a dryer. I used to tell people, why does Cyan Hospital unit look like Taj?" They said, that we have the dryer to dry our hands. One other thing, people didn't wash their hands because the wash basin was outside the unit. I shifted. I can't tell you a whole lot of things that were changed that didn't cost money. That was the most important thing. That time, people were so scared of neonatology, thinking neonatology meant equipment, meant meant train people. And what I was trying to tell pediatricians and people who looked after babies, you don't need all that. You need just make sure that the babies are kept warm. They get the mother's milk. Prevent infection. And the majority of babies, I wouldn't say the tiniest requiring ventilation, that the majority of babies can be saved any part in the country.
1: That's an incredible story and actually it brings me to what you pioneered and that's when I first heard of you. I heard there's this doctor doing amazing work with breastfeeding and she wants a series of movies made on encouraging mothers on how to breastfeed. And I heard about you and I was at the Xavier Institute of Communication and that's when I first met you. But then you went on to actually set up Asia's first human milk bank. And also what started as an initiative in one hospital soon took on a momentum of its own. I mean, breastfeeding was what was being talked about by UNICEF and everyone. So if you could tell us a little bit about that, what did it take to convince people that this whole concept of a human milk bank is doable, it's needed, it's feasible? And I'm sure you must have had to do a lot of convincing. And there was probably some skepticism that you must have faced. There are two things, Sonali. One is
2: that movement trying to spread. The most important thing is actually for survival of babies is making sure that mothers exclusively breastfeed their babies. So that was the main thing that had to be done. And the movement that was started, and I was one who did it from this part, but many people across the country were trying to promote um, uh, breastfeeding but here when we saw that babies could be exclusively breastfed in a hospital like sign and sign you know the uh, 10 to fifteen thousand deliveries at the poorest of people and here we we could actually make sure that every mother could breastfeed a baby so this was the message I said all other public hospitals could do that so with this in my mind uh, i I had went to see the head of the bMC in charge of hospital, the DMC. but before I did that, I knew that when you need to convince people you need data, and I went and asked him, I said, "We found that in cyan Hospital that babies are all babies don't breastfeed at birth and they go home and they come back and they're not. "Can I do a study in all the hospitals, the municipal corporation?" And there were quite a few. There were two other medical colleges, 13 peripheral, 26 maternity. So he gave me permission. And we found, like in Sion Hospital, a small percentage didn't feed the babies at birth, even before they left the hospital. But worse still, when they came back for follow up, a large 20 to 25% had stopped breastfeeding. And they were giving formula, they were using bottles, which was the source of infection giving rise to infection in the neonates' deaths, also in infants. So here was... And all those who come to the Municipal Hospital are poor patients. They can't afford formula feed and sterilization. So with that data, I went back to them and I said, See, we want to get all hospitals to know that you can convert them, make sure that they get all babies are breastfed. So they gave us permission. I remember the early days, I think the one question, municipal corporation always asked, do you want any funds from us? I knew if I said any funds, they'll say no. They said, no, we don't need any funds. And you know, the three of us in our department, Jayeshree, Radhan and all, we used to go to hospital hospital with, we had our own projector. And we went, we met with the superintendent of the hospital and we were taking lectures. Now, this was between 89 and 91. And then '91 WHO and UNICEF came out with the baby friendly hospital initiative. That was wonderful. And when they came out with the initiative, they had funds to do programs. And of course they came and asked us because we were always already doing that work and we were so happy. So Nali it showed me the difference. When UNICEF said, get a project we are willing to fund. Once you have funds You can change the way you work and you can really do a good job. So once we had funds, we said we must train people and train them well. And that's why we came out probably the first uh, breastfeeding manual in India. It's called the Blue Book. And with the film, that's what you were talking about, your friends. We went, we said a a film to back the, and also we should teach them exactly what to do and how to do and with that we had an infant feeding project we covered all the hospitals in the city but the learning from this and i think that learning is uh, we uh, you have carried that out uh, through all the other programs i did is you can't do anything alone you need the cooperation so the bmc officials from the most operative then we went to all the medical colleges and we got not only pediatrics neonatologists. the Obstetricians as as well. We got all of them together, so we had a big team of trainers to train. We also went to the academic bodies, IAPs, NNFs, so those in private practice also came on board. And so when everyone is together and going on, we can do a much better job. Luckily from there, it moved up, which we did that and we saw so so many hospitals, baby-friendly, UNICEF you know, said, can we go to the state? But I want to tell you, when you know when you talk about going to the state, I, I remember, this, I'll never forget this story. I didn't know anybody in the Maharashtra state, and they said, Directorate of Health Services is one, this doctor, Salum K. So I go into his office and I said, Sir, this is what I think we should do for the state. And the first thing they say, whenever you talk about breastfeeding, he said, but every... Baby in India is breastfed. So, of course, I had to took out my data, (laughs) which was carrying along with me. I said, no, this is the data. You think they're breastfeeding, but no, this is what finally happens. And he was convinced, and he said, I'm going to uh, have a meeting of all the civil surgeons in the hospitals and the deans of the medical colleges in Maharashtra. You can come and address them. I was only too happy. There we went. We addressed them. And you know what he had to say? This this is what I remember about him. He said, now you've heard what has been told about breastfeeding, formula and bottles. I want you all to have a bottle-breaking day. <laughs> and not only break bottles, but send me photographs. Really? So that was the cooperation we got from them. And then, of course, with my UNICEF funding, we went and covered the entire state, all the medical colleges through the Nurses Association, the nurses colleges, through the government, we had a team through the government, all district training. We went right down into the, all the districts and trained. And at the end of it, I think Maharashtra at that time had the maximum number of baby-friendly hospitals. But that was, I've, I learned so much from that program, how to work with people, how to get the cooperation, and what can be done if everybody's together.
1: You know, I think these stories are so interesting because I've heard you say before also that you never had these grandiose plans and these big heroes and these big role models. You just always wanted to do something. You went ahead and did it. And the universe seems to have worked with you to make it become something larger than life and take on a life of its own. Because what happened with the breastfeeding movement, as we all know, is really something that changed the way infant survival was being looked at in India and the kind of impact it had. So Sonali, I didn't answer the second part of your question
2: about the milk bank. And I want to come back to that because how do you do something quite different that has never happened before? So when we wanted to, like I told you that we wanted a safe, continuous supply of human milk, and the only way to do it is a milk bank. Now, how did I get this idea? It's not that I dreamt of it. I saw it when I was in a Commonwealth, senior Commonwealth Fellowship, I saw it in Oxford. There was a nurse going on a cycle, collecting milk. She and a mother actually, collecting milk, bringing it, and storing it and giving it. So I said, this is an idea. But nothing like this was heard about in India. Forget about, and then, not only India, Mumbai, and that also in a municipal corporation. So when I came up with this idea, of course, first thought is, no one will ever fund it, because where will they not win, willing to fund an incubator? They didn't have funds. So the funding was out of the question. And the second one is, how to convince the... to give us staff. When I talked about it, who gave me total support was the head of the department. Same Dr. Atavle, who said, do something about newborns. So he gave me the support. So when it came to... Milk banking. He said, of course, go ahead and do it. So then I said to get the source of funds. Also, that taught me that you don't have to be in an institution. Besides UNICEF, you can go to other funders. See, you learn. <laughs> As you live, you learn. So I went uh, to the Taj group of hotels, met the person there. And I said, this is what I'm going to do. And he, of course, was shocked. I said, no, it's possible. We need it. if We want to save babies. And he said, okay. But he also told me, see, you in the municipal corporation. Take funding, but be, take it for three years because it'll be, take time to convince. I didn't realize it would take, but really, I just about made it. So I got funding. And then, of course, space, getting space, equipment. The second thing, milk banks abroad are quite different. Because where did they get milk? They got milk from donors donors came from homes where they expressed their milk hygienically, stored it in their fridge and they brought it home. And then they had these Pyrex bottles where they stored the milk and they autoclaved. Here in all my patients from the slum Daravi, there's the question of hygienically even expressing milk. No one had a fridge. So he had to and where we couldn't think of our Pyrex and all expense little break. So I had to modify. When I started that human milk bank, I had to modify, like I always do, to suit our country's situations. So I said, no, we won't uh, get milk from home. We'll get it expressed in the hospital. We'll get it when the mothers come for follow-up. We had a lactation management OPD. They came and expressed the milk. So this was the plan. You uh, change what a human milk to suit the country, the donors to suit. Many of the criteria that we did was to suit our settings. The other thing was to convince the municipal corporation, oh my God, you know, when people are not doctors to go to that office and tell people I have a staff, they almost thought I was I was a lunatic <laughs> mad Human milk? He said, how can you give human milk from another baby? And you know, sometimes you know, God sort of Descends and whispers in your ear and tells you what to do. I told that person and child. I said, "You're giving from a one species to another human being, and you don't want from one mother." Even then, he didn't get convinced. Then I too, I remembered. I said, "You know, you remember Krishna was wet nursed. He didn't have his mother's milk." So finally, with, but it took me up to three years, convinced the authorities, and they gave me. But you know, when you talked about... Did you go around and talk about milk banks? So, for years there was no other milk bank. With great difficulty, we started at KEM and JJ in Mumbai. And people were not convinced, neonatologists were not convinced. Then more and more data came, saying the need for human milk to save sick preterms who needed even few drops of that human milk. So, with more evidence, more and more interest. Today, human milk banks have become a craze in India. Everywhere, if you see the newspapers, someone has opened, there are over a hundred human milk. But it took, I mean, over three decades for it to catch on. So, I really started in eighty nine, and today, of course, in the last maybe five to ten years, there are human milk banks all over the city, city. all over the country.
1: It's a fascinating story as a concept for you to convince people and then for it to take root and then to come to where it is today. It's been a long journey. I mean, that's fascinating. Talking about the late 80s and the early 90s, Dr. Fernandez, when when you retired, I remember being called in for a meeting in a one-room tenement in Dharavi, And there was a bunch of doctors. You were there and a couple of your colleagues. And you were brainstorming in that little room about how now is the time to work in the community. And you spent a lifetime working in a hospital. But now is the time to move to the community. And I think that is when Sneha was born, right? I remember thinking, what's with these doctors? I mean, you know, they could be out there practicing medicine. They're sitting in this room trying to figure out how they can work in the community. Firstly, Dr. Fernandez, nobody was talking about urban poor and urban health at that time. It was still the rural health. And even when NRHM came, it was NRHM. And UHM came much, much later. So what made you decide to work in the community and to step out of the institution?
2: I think the same, uh, that one thought, Sanalni, that was in my mind, how do I save lives of babies? When I was feeling so good with all the things that I'd started in this at Cyan Hospital, mortality drapes from 70, 60, 50, 40, they just kept dropping. And I was so happy, elated, saying that we are saving babies. And again, two theses of my students I wanted to know what happened to babies, asphyxia, the people who babies who didn't breathe at birth, and preterm babies when they don't. And uh, I said, let's do a follow-up and see what happens to those babies as they uh, grow. So, the students came back and from the OPD said, Madam, they're not coming back for follow-up. So, I said, so what if they're not coming? We have the addresses, let's go to the slums and follow up, follow them up. And when they did go back to the slums, they came back and said, many of those babies had died. They died in the slums. Some of the babies were handicapped, post-asphyxia, and all the things that happened to a very preterm baby, blindness and paralysis, uh, cerebral palsy, and at that time, I, the question I asked myself, why are we saving these babies? Is it fair to send them back into those slums where they're finding it difficult to live their lives and bring up normal babies, and to struggle with these babies. They spend so long in the hospital, come back and struggle. So I said, no, sitting in this NICU, we are lost. We're just doing one aspect, the final, when they come sick and dying. I said, if we really need to save babies, we need to move out of intensive care areas, Go to the place where they live, where the community, with the families change, bring about changes there so that they don't reach the hospital. So that's when I, I thought, I'll start, I'll start working in the slums. But something even worse happened. You know, I was thinking of maternal newborn health all the time because baby has to survive much. Mater- so it was maternal. But at that time, a six-week-old baby was brought to Cyan Hospital, raped. And because they couldn't rape, they had cut the baby. Six weeks it was brought up at our mortality meeting and even you can't even get over something like this happening. And when that happened, I, I don't know whether they finally found the rapist or what they did and who was what did the police do. And because I didn't even have the time to follow up what happened to this, I swore to God that when I retire, I will work on a violence against children and women, and therefore, when I was think, when I said, when I start working in the slums, it will be maternal and newborn health, and it will also be violence against women and children. So the, the concept of starting working in slums happened at that time. And I was... And uh, how to work, what is an NGO, of course, I have no idea at all. But it so happened, like I'm talking now, I always keep talking, and I was at a wedding, and I was, Talking and one of my part relative friend, uh, Neville Sones, he told me we were in a group and he said, Armira, you're always talking about slums and working there." He says, "I'm selling a house in Nashik, and oh, what I'm going to give you the money, you start working in the slums." So this was a statement at a wedding, and I smile and said, "I I forgot about it." But tragically, the next morning I get the news that Neville was in his late 40s was not really old uh, collapsed and he passed away so and it was really shocking and after a few weeks his wife patricia to maybe weeks or a month or so she comes to me with cheque and all the money and she says no armida i sold that house in nashik and here's the money that's what i'm saying that's why i believe that god has a plan She said, do you know, I was not in that group. I came in when Neville was making this statement. This was his last promise to you, and I have to follow it. And to me, Patricia Snufson had five children. The eldest was 16, the youngest was 5, and I said, how are you going to support your family, if you're going to give the money, plus I've not left the hospital. I don't know how to start. She said, nothing doing, you have to do it. it. Looked as though I was being told that I make facilitating it, God is telling me, I'm facilitating it, you need to work. And therefore, I, it, I, I realized that I wanted to work, and here I was getting money, even before I started, and that's how I started. Of course, to think that with that little money, we start with one social worker and working in one slump, we've reached now from that thing to seven states and a, a more than 500 workers, it's, it's transformed.
0: After nearly 25 years at Cyan Hospital, Dr. Armida Fernandez retired as the dean of the hospital and left to work at Sneha, an NGO that she had founded. Mumbai, a city teeming with close to 14 million people. More than 50% of this population lives in the slums, without proper access to basic amenities like food, water, housing and healthcare services. Sneha was formed in 1999 by Dr. Armida Fernandez at a public hospital in Sion, Mumbai. Often working in the hospital's intensive care unit, she realized that many complicated cases could have been avoided with timely healthcare.
1: So Dr. Fernandez, could you tell us more about Sneha? We did hear about how it began many decades ago, but it's come such a long distance today. If you could uh, share with us, what are the different issues that it works on today? Why were these seen to be important? Also, were these issues in some way interconnected? I said my first thought, I think for years, had
2: been how could I help uh, save the lives of newborn babies and therefore with the newborn babies, mothers. So, when we started Sneha, we moved into the community. But uh, even as we started, we, we realized that we just can't work with only communities. We'd be trying to uh, change behavior, get uh, mothers to seek um, health care and look after the babies, hygienic methods, exclusive breastfeeding. But finally, when they're sick, they needed to go to hospitals. So, we had to work simultaneously with both the communities and institutions. So, so this was a, a major thing, these two. And then, like I said, even early on, I realized that if we needed to convince people, or even ourselves, are we doing the right thing, it had to be evidence-based. So uh, there, were, there, were, uh, there were times when we didn't do the right thing and we, evidence showed that, no, this is not what you need to do. So I think the three strongholds of SNEHA is we work in partnership with communities, we work with systems, and all that we do, all our programs are evidence-based. Having said that, when we started, it was the mother and child, so maternal newborn health. But we said that if the child really has to survive or the mother has to give birth to a child who has a good birth weight, not a low birth weight, then we couldn't start with the mother, pregnant mother. We had to start much earlier. So we had to work with the adolescent girl. And if that adolescent girl had to be healthy, then she should have she had nutritionally well, even in her childhood. So we realized that we can't look at one aspect, and it had to be at the whole life cycle of the woman. And therefore, Sneha now works with, you know, uh, the adolescent, the mother, the newborn, uh, the child across the life cycle and to, to break the intergenerational gap of ill health. So if you want a heavier baby and all, we have to work through it. At the same time, we realize that and at all times, it could be at, uh, as a child, it could be as a, uh, an adolescent or a woman, violence had an integral role In the health of that, both physical health and mental health, and therefore across these all stages, we would work with violence. So this was our main project, and this is this is how we worked. So that's what we did, and like we said, when we said worked with systems, like in uh, for maternal newborn health, we worked with the municipal corporation in Mumbai city. They have all the free services across. When we talked about violence, we worked with the police and the legal health system. So we were working with uh, systems. When we worked with nutrition, uh, we worked with the ICDS, which is the government. So all our partnerships have been with the systems as well
1: i want to take up uh, this point that you've just raised because i find it very interesting many non profits find it very very challenging to use a mild phrase to work with the public systems you know and i recall dr fernandez i sat in on a meeting i think it was the thane municipal corporation and it was a round table there were the there was the municipal commissioner there were various bureaucrats and there was sneha And what Sneha was sharing was being listened to with a great level of attention and respect. What I found in that room was a level of mutual respect and a kind of symbiotic relationship, which I really haven't seen between too many NGOs and government. And I remember the same in a police conference, which Sneha was facilitating on violence. So what was it that made this relationship possible? Because it is fairly unusual. It's not that common. I think when we first
2: started working and we were we already knew the weaknesses of the system because we came from a, a municipal hospital. So we knew the weaknesses. And therefore we said when we worked, for example, with maternal newborn health, we realized that Neha actually didn't do anything. We started a process of referral system across the municipal hospitals because we realized that the even normal cases came to level 3 and the complicated cases went to level one and by the time they reached the hospital, the mother or the baby was at a very high risk. So we said, we'll start a system of referral. Now what we did, and I think it's important to learn is, that our approach was very participatory. We were only a catalyst on Alnibi. We actually didn't do the work. For example, in the referral system, we had the administrators and they looked at the, the gaps or the weaknesses of the system what are the gaps they need to fill? So they looked at it. They found the solutions. And then they put, put into practice. So also the doctors and the, we had a doctor group. We had a nurses group. And at every level, they were looking at what are the gaps. What did Sneha do? We made sure they met. We organized a meeting, recorded the minutes. We translated and we made sure that what they discussed and said they would do, they would follow up. So really that participatory approach. And then we never took the credit. We congratulated the hospitals for doing what they're doing because finally they were doing it. So I think what is important is, as NGOs, when you say, you know, we as NGOs, how do they respect it? Because they realize that we are not there to say that we've done something, that uh, they they take the credit for Whatever they are doing, so once we did it in the municipal corporation, the municipal corporation of uh, Mumbai realized we are doing a good job. Our systems were laid. We also had a. I forgot to tell you, we had an, a, a group of uh, you know professionals in the field, drop neonatologists who made the protocols for levels one, two, three. That was put into place, and once that was done, the municipal corporation was really happy with the work done. The word news spread. So the seven municipal corporations around Mumbai came to us and said, can you do this for our uh, corporation as well? And I think one of the meetings that you attended in Thane, they had invited us to come. The second is, we got people from the municipal corporation to come, from Mumbai municipal corporation, to talk to them what happened, how it was done. And I think then comes the uh, acceptance, you know, that you know what they mean, what they're doing. They do a good job and things are put into place. And finally, we have now allowed the municipal co- corporation has taken over what we're doing. So we need not be there anymore. So I think that's what uh, what we learnt in um, working with systems.
1: And I think what we saw in Mumbai was how that translated into something quite amazing on the ground during COVID. I think the Dharavi model where Sneha, where the municipal corporation partnered with NGOs on the ground, especially with Sneha. And by then, I think Sneha had this major force of volunteers drawn from Dharavi. So this three-way partnership, which did some really amazing work in terms of compliance with the protocols for COVID. I mean, I remember the high rises and the upper middle class and middle class of Mumbai, they weren't following compliant behavior. But the NGOs working, the Sneha outreach and volunteers and what they did with the municipal corporation in Dharavi. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but this has been documented and went on to be seen as a best practice in COVID uh, uh, management uh, across the world. You need to uh, give credit to the uh, DMC who was there. Kiran
2: Ah, Yeah, Kiran Digavkar. You know what he did, and it's the same thing what I told you when we were doing breastfeeding. He, He said we can't do it alone, the municipal corporation. So he got everybody to participate. So it was the municipal corporation, the government, the the NGOs, and the community. So everybody participated. So I think that was one reason. But what what was the role of Sneha? And uh, Sneha, you know, has a huge army of volunteers. We we say we have almost 500 workers, but we have almost 700 volunteers. Amazing. And this is extremely important because... Finally, when we were looking at sustainability, it is the volunteers in the communities that will take over. And these volunteers and some of our community health workers were actually living in the slums of Daravi. So we had a large workforce of volunteers living in Daravi. So because of the technology, and although we could not move and no one could move around... We could get in touch with all the volunteers, we could get in touch with the community organizers within the slums and what we were, you know, the uh, role of each NGO was, uh, you know, identified and ours was distribution of whatever food that we had to give, fruits and vegetables and all. I think that was an excellent model and many people can learn from it because the way it was planned and um, done.
1: From a communication lens, actually, I think what worked was that level of trust that you'd already established with the community. Because without that trust, I mean, getting compliant behavior, we've seen it in polio or in HIV. People were willing to go that extra mile because they realized that Sneha understands them. I think and Sneha was there to tell them what is doable while the rest of the world was saying, don't do, don't do, don't do. I remember you had a Ghar Wali Diwali. I mean that was incredible. When everyone was telling Moombaikers, stay at home, there's COVID out there, don't step out. You said celebrate at home. It was a different tone. I think I think that that's the little things. I don't know. I mean today when I look at Sneha and I see how you've actually You're open to taking the best from everywhere, whether it's technology or research. The transition that you made in terms of taking the best from everywhere, you were open to taking someone from the private sector, you brought leadership into a not-for-profit from a sector that is not associated with not-for-profits. How did that transition happen? People, whenever they start an NGO,
2: whatever they start, they say, I have a dream, I have a vision, and they plan it so well, and then they go forward. Unfortunately, my life has been so different. The dream vision, all now, it has been very small. You know, something really affected me. I felt strongly about it and had to do something about it. And you know, I could do it with the best possible way I knew. So what were my strengths, really? I, I think my one strength is, uh, strength my heart feels strongly. The second is, I need to do something and I want to do it and make sh- sure it happens. So that's the second thing. I'm a I'm a dreamer in many ways. I'm a teacher. But you know, when you talk of systems and policies, what happens and what is happening in uh, Sneha today, I'm not that type of a person. And uh, when I was, I, there were 10 years, 12 years down into Sneha, I was doing all this work. Two things happened. One is, we were doing a fairly good job, but not deepest. The second is my daughter, you know, same one who had exchanged transfusion. This was the second uh, bout of you uh, know got into cancer and she was very ill and was finding it difficult to continue working as with as much uh, vigor. So at that time and I, I give uh, credit to I think, I think uh, get, give credit to the people who were on the board who, who felt very strongly that we must do something about it. We need to get a full-time person who will work. The second peop, uh, set of people I want to give is Dasra. Dasra, we would got a nutrition project. You know, they have different programs, and they would got us, we went into a nutrition project, and they said, we. after the first meeting, uh, they said, no, we need a full-time CEO. We have to continue to fund it. And therefore, I'm saying, Lord, where will I get the full-time? Because there are lots of people who are qualified. But we were looking at someone who feels strongly about what they are doing. You know, you, it's not that you, it's not the background and what degrees they have, but they have to feel strongly about it. Secondly, the person has to have the right values. Oh, so it, It's so important to run and organize it. And third is the, uh, the skills. You know, bring in the skills that you have to run an organization, run the programs. One of our volunteers, uh, Vanessa D'Souza, she w- worked for um, uh, Citibank, So having a big post in Citibank, and she'd worked there for 20 years, and she had uh, resigned from Citibank. And when she was there, she came and volunteered. So I, she was being volunteered with me for six months, but somehow I got the feel, I got to feel, my God, this girl is very good. I remember, normally when we went for uh, donations and all to some... I used to make a presentation. I think once I couldn't, I said, Vanessa, can you do it? She did such a good presentation. I said, in future, I better not talk. Vanessa is the one who should go and do the presentation. So I realised she had the ability, and but she was not sure. But when it came to the crunch, my daughter was really ill. Like, I just couldn't do it. And I told her, Vanessa, she said, I don't know whether this is what I want to do. And I said, at least try it out for some time. And then Vanessa said, yes. But I think her coming from that corporate background and also the person she is, not just, I mean, lots of people work for the made all the difference to Sneha. She got in people from technology. She brought in people from communication. She brought in people that changed the uh, face of Sneh. And if you say uh, policies and vision and uh, systems and whatever you, this is uh, this is uh, after she came in, she really did an excellent job. And I, I give it credit. I would also add, Vanessa did this part of it, but a colleague of mine who was with me in San Shanti Pantavai there, she took over the whole medical aspect Vanessa is not a doctor so she could do and she you know she looks at every small comma and all she she has a different mind so she looked after all the programs and the third blessing was for the finance you know today is uh you need the right finance person and there's archana so the three
1: of them are changed now i want to take up something that If you're comfortable talking about, you mentioned that Romila became very unwell at one point in time. And we know the pain that you and Dr. Rui went through. And um, Romila suffered for a long time, and her passing led you to begin the palliative care organization, the component of Sneha working in palliative care, which. Much later with your vision today has become an entire network in Mumbai. It has grown from one organization to so many. Would you like to tell us a little bit about palliative care? I mean, you had done so much in promotive and preventive and then treatment and rehabilitative. It's almost like life has come full circle and the entire spectrum of health care. And today you're passionate about palliative care. I mean, both personally and professionally, that is what takes your energy today would you like to talk a bit about that journey? I think the lesson I, one has to learn,
2: like I said, you know, you go through a lot of suffering in life. I've seen many people suffer, mothers suffer, and so I know that suffering comes to everyone. So even you, we in our lives have to suffer, and I think I went through that suffering uh, of my daughter, and I finally lost her uh, about 10 years ago, and at that time, I uh, I I hadn't heard really about palliative care. I knew, of course, here we have Shanti Avedana, and it was a hospice for the dying. So you send someone who's dying, and they will die. But you know, that's about all I knew. I didn't know the whole spectrum of palliative care, where palliative care means relief of suffering, not just physical suffering, where you give pain relievers, but it is about um, mental suffering, social suffering, spiritual, and it's not just the the who has the disease, but it is the caregivers. I realized it with Romla at that time, but when it was us, I didn't know who was there to support, who would do that. And after Romla passed away, and I, yeah, I heard that the someone told me, "Why don't you go and meet." Uh, and talk to Dr. Marianne, who's doing palliative care. And I did that, and then she gave me the whole spectrum. He said, you know, even at home, your daughter was at home, but people could have come to your house and helped her, and helped you and her husband, and and my husband, Rui, who was suffering so much. And I said, oh my God, I wish I knew it. And the moment I heard that, I said, I, my husband, as doctors, didn't know about it. What about the rest of the world? And I said, probably, I always feel though something happens in my life that tells me I've got to do something about it. I said, I must make sure that people know about palliative care, and I will start it in Romila's name. Romila, Palliative Care you are swagat to palliative care. What is Prashamak Dekhbal? Palliative care means Prashamak Dekhbal ek vishesh prakar ki seva hai jo aise marizo ko di jati hai jinko gambhir bimariyan hai doctor ke nurse counselor physiotherapist social worker ityadi sath milkar aapki madad
1: karne ki koshish karte
2: so i started the Romula palliative care and outpatient and then home care but the the beauty is you know we reach out uh, uh, sonali for example and i realized that uh, Palliative care is not only for cancer patients. Palliative care is for, uh, for dementia, for, uh, for Parkinson's, for stroke, for chronic obstructive lung, heart disease. So, you know, so there's a huge spectrum. And leave aside the patients, the caregivers are suffering. And, here's, there's a, and there's a huge gap in the hospitals, in the community. Hospitals don't accept palliative care, they don't admit palliative care. Patient. So this was something had to be done about it, and that's why I started it. And like I started it in a in a small way, but like you said, the universe comes down to help you do whatever you are doing. And so we then we had teams that could go home. We had a doctor, nurse, counselor went to different parts, did home care, made sure that these patients that we were dealing with got palliative care. Our center. You must see our centre. You've seen it, Sonali. It's a cheerful centre. We have a day for dementia, a day for Parkinson's, a day for cancer. We have a day for senior citizens who suffered so much during Covid time. It's a cheerful, you know, cheerful uh, place for them. And you can see them, they come smiling, actually, and go out smiling. So I think that it made all the difference. And like I said, you know, whenever I start something, you can't do it alone. I started a network when I was doing breastfeeding. I started a Mumbai uh, breastfeeding network that is still functioning today and doing a tremendous job. So I said, we can't do it alone. And therefore I said, let me call other people who are working in small ways in palliative care together. And we formed a group. And now this group is uh, larger and larger. You're very much a part of the uh, group. And we go across and we're trying to change. We're trying to change your... Uh, you know, hospitals, doctors who who don't believe in palliative care. Doctors think they must cure, and if they can't cure, they can't. So we are are talking to doctors, nurses, we're trying to change the community. It'll take time, but it'll happen. We also, what we've started is, uh, in all our academic units, for example, in pediatrics, we have uh, training courses in palliative care that never existed. So we're trying to push palliative care, and I think, There was a need. I think I lost my daughter for a reason. I think I got some sort of healing because of of what we are doing for other patients like her.
1: I think this is a really touching story. And I think what's also very significant is because I remember the early days when you tried to start the network. Everyone was busy working in their own little silos and doing their own little thing. And the initial few meetings, there was this level of cynicism with people saying, look, why are we meeting? We're also busy with our own work. This network won't take off. And there were many amongst us who felt that, you know, why are we meeting once a month? You know, But today, I mean, thanks to that network, the cross referrals and also the share strength in numbers, the kind of advocacy that the network can do as a group. When it comes to doctors or the government, I mean, we've seen how those numbers matter and how networking matters. And I think for me, that was a real learning. You don't give up. I mean, the first three, four meetings, we all said, look, the numbers are dwindling. There are only five today. There are only four next time. Today, there are 25 that network consists of more than 70 plus and at least 25, 30 come for every meeting. I I mean, I I had to swallow my own. (laughs) I kept thinking that will this work? Incredible. I think... Nobody knew what palliative care was and we're actually getting that language out there now. The second thing, you
2: know, Sunalini, we had a hospice much before the rest of the country, Shanti Vedana, but it is only for cancer patients. Now, you know, Sukun Dr. Eric Borges at King George's Memorial, it's a palliative care for non-cancer patients. And as you know, in our network, more and more people are starting such centers for, and uh, uh, hospitals for non-cancer patients as well. So really it is spreading. I, I think someone above makes sure things happen. He just uh, gives you the push. They start and I'll be there with you.
1: That's really lovely, because I think the universe has worked with you. And as you said, someone above has really supported all these wonderful heartwarming concepts, ideas, plans. And just your life mission, I mean, if I were to ask you, what is it today that really gives you a sense of joy and meaning and purpose? What is it today that keeps you going? I mean, you've seen a lot. It's not been easy. What keeps you going today? And what is it that you, what's the vision that you have for tomorrow, for palliative care, for Sneha, for all of us? I think I'll start with the vision
2: first, Sanalini. I think, what is the vision I have for Snya? We're going to be almost 25 years next year. And I I think we've been here for a long time. And we've always talked about sustainability. We've done a whole lot of uh, research projects and all our projects. We have documentation. We know what we're doing, what works and what doesn't. So it is time to start a center. I think evidence-based work in at uh, the extent that we have done in SNEA on maternal newborn health, on nutrition, on violence, is a, it's in a huge amount. So it is time for us to start that center here in uh, Mumbai and uh, not do as many pro- programs as we have cut down the programs, only try out newer things that we create more evidence on how you can work in uh, urban slums. We've also come to a level where we can hand over. We can hand over to the system. Some of them, I would say to some extent, maternal newborn health and a little bit of nutrition because we've had this large projects on nutrition in there 2,000 babies where we've reduced the malnutrition stunting by 6%. Huge numbers. And the whole, it is evidence-based. We have data to show that. So now we are handing it over to um, the ICDS on one hand. We are slowly withdrawing our staff and also handing to the community. Certain programs like violence, it's not time. We still can't. We are working with police. We are training with police. We are looking after the one-stop center. So this, so it will take time. But there will be a time. Even adolescent health, it's the newest program. We need to continue. So I think this is what I think would happen to our programs in uh, Sneha. Even palliative care, there'll be time where uh, we uh, we won't have to do palliative care because systems will have to take taken up. We am trying to push palliative care. So all the hospitals will have a palliative care OPD. All the hospitals will have a palliative care uh, unit. Wonderful. The government, the government has its community health workers and they also will be uh, doing palliative care. So the National Urban NHS has already started palliative care they could take over palliative care. So I think that should be the future of both uh, Sneha, all the things that we are doing. And uh, the other question is, what is it that uh, gives me joy and what is it that keeps me going? You know, I've been walking, and you know, I walk in the morning and I was taking my walk and I reached the end of the road and suddenly I see the sun rising. And, you know, there was a little bit of a gray cloud and below it this red sun. You know, my heart... You know, I was so happy to see that sunrise. I think um, nature gives me a lot of joy. I love to see sunset, sunrise. I love uh, trees. I love flowering trees. I love plants and flowers. All this, like I said in a, a early uh, sonali, I've been blessed with love from the time I've been born. My family, my parents, my family, my friends. You know, wherever my wonderful husband my recently lost my my daughter. I was enveloped with love. And I think when you are loved, you you need to give that love. It sort of flows. You've got to give that love back. And I I think what keeps me going is that love. That if I see someone suffering, if I see someone in pain, whatever I God has a purpose for each one of us. You know, He's brought us into this life because He has a purpose. And I need to follow, I, can, I have to keep working till I can, so when I have limbs and I can talk and not walk, I will go around and do what it, and makes me happy, and I think even when I can't walk, I'm just young, 80, of course, when I can't walk, whatever, love is something you can give in any place you are or wherever it is, I think, I think that's what I live for actually, that that's what keeps me going
1: really have no words to say, Dr. Fernandez. All I can say is that we've been touched by that love. Many of us who have known you well are so privileged and so blessed to have been touched by that love. We have felt it. We are hugely blessed and grateful for having been so privileged as to have known you. I think it's it's really I'm too uh, emotional to say much more, except for a huge big thank you for spending so much time talking and, you know, opening up and sharing your stories and opening your heart to us. And uh, it's really been wonderful. Thank you very much for today. Thank you, Sonalini.
0: Grassroots Nation is a podcast from Rohini Nilekani Philanthropies. For more information, go to rohininilekani philanthropies.org or join the conversation on social media at rnp underscore foundation. Stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you for listening to Grassroots Nation.